Welcome to the Internet History Podcast. I'm your host, Brian McCullough. In our previous episode on the history of Google, we remarked that Google very much fashioned itself as the anti-dot-com. But there was one important trait that Google shared with the dot-com. It wasn't making very much money. It's somewhat forgotten now, especially given what would come later, But Google actually existed for several years without much of a business plan. The vision Larry and Sergey had sold the venture capitalists on involved a three-pronged strategy. First, Google would license its search technology to the major portals. Second, the company would sell its search technology as a product to enterprises. And third, There were some vague promises made about selling ads against the searches on Google's own website. The young company actually made major progress towards the first goal by finally convincing some of the portals to use Google's results on their search pages. The first deal in this regard was struck with Netscape for its NetCenter portal, But the really big coup came when Yahoo was finally convinced to use Google for its search results. Previously, a company named Inktomi had been Yahoo's search partner. The partnership with Yahoo was announced in June of 2000 and was an enormous deal for Google at the time. Part of the arrangement allowed for a Powered by Google logo to appear on Yahoo's search pages thereby introducing the Google brand to millions more mainstream web users. Daily searches served by Google swelled from 18 million a day before the Yahoo deal to 6 million a day afterwards. By early 2000, Google would pass the 100 million searches per day milestone for the first time, answering 1,000 queries a second. Yahoo seemed not to mind that Google was essentially usurping its search audience because, at the time, Yahoo didn't feel that search was a core product. It was still pursuing its portal strategy. Yahoo did, however, purchase a $10 million equity stake in its new partner, thereby tying Yahoo and Google together in ways that would later become quite important. What Yahoo didn't know was how important the partnership would prove to be for Google's overall product. Remember that Google's algorithms improved in direct relation to how many searches it performed and how much data Google's computers could hoover up. The flood of queries coming from Yahoo users not only took Google to the next level in terms of search market share, but many Google engineers would later credit the Yahoo traffic for fine-tuning Google's search engine into its mature state. Google was essentially improving itself on the back of its biggest partner. But the problem for Google was that the Yahoo deal simply wasn't lucrative enough. The fees that Yahoo coughed up were barely enough to cover the increased processing and bandwidth costs Google incurred to service the traffic. 
The Yahoo deal taught Google that licensing alone wouldn't be a big enough home run to build a company around, at least not a very big company. The second leg of Google's original strategy stool was at the same time proving to be little better. Google actually produced a hardware device known as the Google Search Appliance, which was a rack-mounted box meant to be installed in corporate data centers. It was designed to provide corporations and other organizations with large amounts of data the ability to organize, index, and search that data the same way that Google did with the web. But even though Google continued to produce the search appliance all the way through this year, 2017, it never proved to be a breakout hit. The truth was, by the end of 2000, Google was in a bit of a crisis. With a monthly burn rate of more than $500,000, the $25 million from Kleiner Perkins and Sequoia was starting to run low, especially as Google was launching international versions of its website and continued to hire, taking total headcount past 100. Google board member and investor Mike Moritz admitted later, quote, There was a period where things were looking pretty bleak. We were burning cash, and the enterprise was rejecting us. The big licenses were very hard to negotiate, end quote. And since Google had yet to earn a dime on the average of 70 million daily searches it was getting on its own site, by January of 2001, Google's out-of-control growth was actually becoming a problem. While the service was becoming so popular that its very name was becoming a common verb, no suitable business line had gained enough traction to cover the costs of all that analyzing, spidering, indexing, and ranking. Early Google investor Ram Shiram says, quote, There was genuine concern at the board level about where the revenues were going to come from, end quote. To make matters worse, it appeared to Google's venture backers that the company's founders were reneging on their commitment to bring in a grown-up CEO. If Page and Bryn didn't recruit someone who could turn Google into a real company with real prospects to generate cash, there were rumblings that either Kleiner or Sequoia, or both, might actually pull out of the investment. Of course, advertising, that third leg of Google's theoretical business model, was still an option, but in early 2001, the existing advertising model of throwing banner ads at the top of every web page had imploded. Web advertising in general was in a deep freeze, the overall online ad market plunging down to $6 billion in 2002, down from $8.2 billion in 2000. All of the surviving portals were suffering because of this state of affairs. In the midst of the freefall in its stock price, Google's erstwhile partner Yahoo was forced to lower its revenue guidance to Wall Street by 25% twice in a single quarter, as the dot-coms went bankrupt and advertisers ponied up 50% less for online ads. So advertising didn't look particularly promising. But then, Google had never really experimented with ads at that point because the company's founders were firmly against the idea. In their 1998 academic paper introducing Backrub PageRank, 
Page and Brin had attacked the very notion of search companies relying on advertising to generate revenue because it made them, quote, inherently biased towards the advertisers and away from the needs of consumers, end quote. In other words, ads guaranteed bad search results. But at that very moment of crisis, a revolution in online advertising was taking place that would ultimately prove to be Google's salvation. In the late 1990s, there was a brief vogue for what were known as incubators, sort of startup factories that churned out business ideas and business plans in the hope of launching new companies on an industrial scale. Often these incubators had no meaningful revenue themselves, instead relying on the value of the shares they held when their progeny went public. One such incubator was Idealab, founded by the serial tech entrepreneur Bill Gross. Idealab was responsible for many classic dot-com companies like eToys.com, PetSmart.com, and NetZero. But by far the biggest success Idealab had was when it experimented in online search. Launched at the TED conference in February of 1998, GoTo.com was a company conceived of by Gross and Idea Lab as a completely new type of search engine. Instead of search results generated by spidering the web and returning pages based on an algorithm, GoTo returned results that were almost exclusively provided by sponsors. GoTo served up text ads designed to look like search results, but which were paid for by advertisers who bid for position. So for any given keyword, a company could agree to pay whatever it costs to rank first for that search term. If you wanted to show up first on a search for, say, flowers, you could bid 10 cents a click. If somebody bids 7 cents, they could be listed second. Bidding a nickel might get you third place, and so on and so on. If you wanted to go crazy and bid $100 a click, you could theoretically rank number one for every search term in existence. The idea of a search engine that only returned ads was extremely distasteful to most people. Indeed, Gross was nearly hissed off the TED stage during his presentation. But advertisers loved the idea and signed up in droves because they quickly intuited the first important thing that GoTo was pioneering, search as an invaluable tool for driving commerce. Bill Gross had stumbled upon one of the greatest advertising models in the history of the world because paid search represents a uniquely powerful nexus point for advertisers to insert themselves into. No user uses a search engine lest she wants to actually find something. You don't perform a search like hotels in Marietta, Georgia, without having at least some passing interest in booking a hotel in that city in the near future. Ad buyers didn't have to try to guess where potential customers for their products might be. The customers were coming to them. Brand advertisers didn't have to chase down consumers and try to make a meaningful impression on their mind, and then hope that that impression lasted when it finally came time for the consumer to spend. Advertising around search allowed marketers to reach consumers at the very point of intentionality, at the very moment 
they were either researching a purchase or actually looking to buy. It was almost like they could now advertise their products right when a consumer walked in the shop door. Note that an important component of this entire process was the ability to pay per click as opposed to paying based on the number of people who theoretically viewed your ad as every other online advertiser did in the dot-com era. This was the second key innovation. With the go-to model, an advertiser only paid for performance. If no one clicked on your ad, you paid nothing. This was a radical but extremely enticing option, especially at a time when click-through rates on banner ads were actually plummeting. Clicks were actions, and actions were measurable. An advertiser would know that, as an example, 200 people clicked on their ad yesterday, and 17 of those clicks actually turned into sales. The effectiveness of cost-per-click advertising could be calculated down to the nearest cent. In a previous chapter, we mentioned John Wanamaker's famous quote about wondering which portion of an ad spend was wasted. Well, with the go-to model, nothing was wasted. You knew exactly what worked and what didn't and could make adjustments accordingly in almost real time. Bill Gross had intended for go-to to become a shopping destination, thus the active tense of the name. And yet, even though advertisers eagerly signed up to hawk their wares, the consumers didn't actually follow, at least not in numbers that rivaled the portals. Undeterred, Gross had the brilliant idea of chasing the traffic that he needed. GoTo approached nearly all the extant portals and search engines and offered them what was essentially free money. GoTo would syndicate its paid search results so that for almost any keyword on a site like AOL Search, the first three or four results would actually be GoTo's text links, which, though they looked like the other search results, would actually be ads. When searchers clicked on these paid links, GoTo would share the ad revenue with the portal, thereby instantly monetizing the search traffic that, up until that point, had only been indirectly monetized in the form of banner ads. GoTo succeeded in signing deals with all of the major portals, and at a stroke, turned Search, which had been a loss leader for portals throughout the 90s, into a cash cow. By 2002, GoTo had changed its name to Overture to better reflect its true business model of introducing customers to advertisers, and was earning more than $78 million a year on $668 million in revenue, all from paid clicks syndicated to the likes of Yahoo, AOL, and MSN. Overture saved the portals by fixing a fundamental flaw in their business model. Portals had sprung up in the first place because they needed stickiness. None of the early search sites could make money when users actually went out onto the web like they were supposed to, sent there by the portal's search engines. So instead, they attempted to hoard all those eyeballs, keeping them on site in order to create impressions for banner ads. That's what all the things like horoscopes were about. But now, clicking itself was finally worth something. As the writer John Battelle has put it, 
Overture could generate billions of dollars, one click, one nickel at a time. Overture came along at a very opportune moment for the internet. As the bubble burst and the advertising market cratered, paid search stepped into the breach to replace the lost revenue from all those bankrupt dot-com advertisers. In the case of Yahoo, by the summer of 2002, the paid links it was getting from Overture accounted for more than 10% of the ailing portal's total revenues and almost all of its much-diminished profits. It's not an exaggeration in the least to say that Overture and paid search saved the portals and the search industry in general. And so, fortuitously enough for Google, there was now a very lucrative new advertising model that it could copy. And what was more, this new model of ad had proven the immense value of Google's core product, which was search. But since Larry and Sergey never met an idea they didn't think they could improve upon, Google was not interested in merely copying Overture's business model. If Google was going to have ads, the ads would have to be better than traditional ads. They would have to actually be useful. Google first experimented with advertising in January of 2000 when it began showing unobtrusive text links above certain keywords. Text, of course, was the medium Google preferred because instead of flashy banners, text was low bandwidth. But the ads were still priced like banner ads on the traditional CPM, or cost per impression model. Advertisers paid $15 per thousand impressions on the first listed link, a $12 CPM for the second, and a $10 CPM for the third. Promoted via a small New York-based sales force headed by Tim Armstrong, a hotshot digital advertising executive recruited from Disney's dot-com-era online efforts. At first, Google's ads only enticed around 350 advertisers. But Page and Brin had never really wanted a sales team to begin with, of course. In their vision, they were looking for something more scientific, more automated. They liked how anyone could buy an ad through Overture simply by using an online form. And so, in October of 2000, they launched what was called AdWords, which allowed any advertiser, no matter what the size of their operation, to purchase online ads in a matter of minutes using a simple credit card. As GoTo/Overture had discovered, advertisers were quite eager to get in front of Google's burgeoning search traffic, and the first influx of AdWords advertisers put an end to Google's immediate money issues by bringing in $85 million in 2001 alone. And yet, since these ads remained CPM-based, advertisers were still paying for impressions, not for actual clicks. So Google was missing out on the performance-based advertising revolution, and it showed. Overture's 2001 revenues were $288 million compared to Google's $85 million, and that number was growing at a faster rate than Google's. So in February of 2002, Google unveiled a new version of AdWords that copied Overture's cost-per-click and auction pricing model. But in typical Google fashion, 
Its Overture clone had a key innovation that made all the difference in the world. The new version of AdWords was cost per click, and the advertisers bid against competitors' ads, but Google's system was not strictly pay for placement. Ever enamored with math and the power of algorithms, Google introduced an important new ranking factor for the ads that it called a quality score. In essence, Google's system took into account how much an advertiser was willing to pay per click, of course, but in addition, it counted how often that ad was actually clicked on. So each time a search was run and AdWords results were generated alongside the search results, the ranking of the eventual ads took into account how relevant the ads actually were, how successful they were at getting clicked on. This prevented deep-pocketed but ultimately irrelevant advertisers from dominating every keyword. You could no longer guarantee to rank highly just by being willing to pay the most. Your ad also had to be clicked on the most in order to rise up the rankings. Almost counterintuitively, this had the result of successful advertisers actually paying less per click but ranking higher. If your ad was of good quality and tended to get clicked on more often, AdWords trusted that it was more relevant for that search phrase and would therefore rank you higher, even if you didn't increase your bid. Google did this because it knew that it could actually make more money per search over time if the ads were ranked this way. Over time, more money would come in from a five-cent ad so long as that ad were clicked on 25 times on average versus a dollar ad that was only ever clicked on once. From a searcher's perspective, the miracle was that the ads felt less annoying and more relevant. To a certain extent, Google's AdWords began to seem almost as useful as the organic search results themselves for certain keywords because the quality score kept them germane to the searcher's original query. And on the advice of early Google advisor Yossi Vardy, the bulk of AdWords appeared on the right-hand third of the search results page. This had the consequence of increasing the amount of ads that could actually be delivered per each search, all while seeming to make them less intrusive because the original organic search results still filled the main two-thirds of the page, pristine and completely untarnished by the ads. When Google ran limited control experiments where it actually showed one group of searchers results with the ads and another group search results without the ads, the users who saw the ads actually searched more. It became a classic win-win-win. Google started making more money per search than Overture did. Advertisers felt like they were paying less per click while reaching more potential customers. And users felt like they were getting supplemental search results in the form of ads that were often quite useful. Overnight, Google's fortunes were completely transformed. Led by a new hire named Sheryl Sandberg, AdWords became the blockbuster success that Google had been looking for all along. Sandberg would later say of the AdWords miracle, quote, We just started growing. 
it went unbelievably well, end quote. It helped considerably that Google had what Overture didn't, its own highly trafficked search destination. Google didn't have to cut deals with other portals in order to get traffic for its ads, since its own website was already servicing hundreds of millions of searches per day. Google didn't have to cut deals, but it did anyway, especially its blockbuster partnership with AOL, announced in May of 2002. Google would provide not only the organic search results for AOL, but the paid search results as well, stealing the business away from Overture, which had previously provided AOL's paid links. The AOL deal was risky, coming mere months after the AdWords system had been redesigned, and because AOL demanded tens of millions of dollars in guaranteed revenue, whether the ads paid off for Google or not. Sergey Brin would later admit, the AOL deal was a really big bet for our company. Susan Wojcicki would remember, there was real risk. We could make $40 million on the deal, or we could lose $40 million. At the time, we only had $10 million in the bank, end quote. The AOL deal turned out to be quite lucrative, and Google's automated AdWords system proved able to scale adequately to the flood of new traffic. But even if it hadn't, Google still had all that traffic to its own homepage to fall back on. And so 2002 would become Google's first profitable year, with $440 million in sales and $100 million in profits. By 2003, Google's profits were more than $185 million, and the AdWords program could boast more than 100,000 advertisers, all without a commensurate rise in Google's sales team headcount because the entire AdWords sales system was automated. Just a year later, Google's revenues would approach a billion dollars, and just as Overture had discovered, Google learned that search marketing was more lucrative than banner ads had ever been. In retrospect, going into advertising actually played well into Google's deepest strengths. For a company full of data-obsessed alpha nerds, advertising provided a vast new ecosystem of complicated math problems to solve. The original premise of web advertising had always been to turn marketing into an exact science, to be able to drill down and identify your potential customers in a precise, exacting way, and then target them effectively. This original promise had been fumbled during the dot-com era when web advertisers had simply taken the centuries-old CPM advertising model from old media and refashioned it for the web. Some early advertising companies like DoubleClick were pioneering new methods of measurement and targeting, but it took Google, a company obsessed with data, obsessed with metrics, to truly bring the science of advertising into the 21st century. In this regard, it maybe helped that Google didn't have any previous experience with ads, so it didn't know what it shouldn't do. Google looked at advertising as just another math problem that smart algorithms could solve. Indeed, serving the appropriate ads alongside the organic results 
running these auctions in real time for billions of searches and re-ranking the ads in real time according to their performance became an even more complicated algorithmic trick than even search had been. But then Google's entire infrastructure was devoted to crunching numbers and organizing vast amounts of data like this, so it was maybe uniquely positioned to get this sort of thing exactly right. Just as it happened with web search, when Google turned on its new advertising system, it found that the system itself scaled with the mountain of new data. The ads got better over time, so much so that Google's computers could eventually predict with stone-cold accuracy which ads would work and which wouldn't. It turned out that Google had been right not to hire a vast advertising sales force because its automated systems were better at placing ads than Mad Men ever could have been. It really made more sense for advertisers to turn over their entire ad strategies to Google's algorithms. Naturally, not everyone believed this at first. Even as automated AdWords took off like a rocket ship, the old CPM-based ads, known as AdWords Premium, were still operating quite successfully in the background. But when the Google alpha nerds crunched the numbers and found that the automated cost-per-click ads were far and away more effective, the decision was made to discontinue the old CPM ads. This decision came despite the fact that traditional brand advertisers from the Fortune 500 were far more comfortable with the old methods. Tim Armstrong would marvel later, quote, We were doing $300 million a year in CPM ads, and now we're going to turn this other model on and cannibalize that revenue, unquote. Few companies would have had the audacity to do such a thing, to kill a cash cow before it had been fully milked. But Larry and Sergey felt that the numbers proved their new model was superior, and as ever, they were more than willing to have faith in the math. So over the protests of the advertisers that Armstrong had carefully cultivated, all of Google's ads were soon switched over to the automated cost-per-click auction model. And it turned out that Larry and Sergey were right. The ads reached more people for less money, and so the advertisers were soon converted to Google's way of thinking. In the first decade of the 21st century, advertising would increasingly move to digital at the expense of traditional advertising media like television, radio, and especially magazines and newspapers. And to a large degree, this was the direct result of Americans spending increasingly greater numbers of hours per day online. As the writer Tim Wu has pointed out, advertisers always go to where our collective attention spans drift. But just as importantly, in the first decade of this century, advertisers would begin to go online in increasing numbers because a radically more efficient and effective advertising model now existed there. Google can be thought of as a company born from two miracle inventions, one of which it came up with itself, and the other of which was cribbed from Overture. Now, definitively solving the problem of web search is obviously the miracle that has had the largest impact on our society. It's hard 
even to imagine a modern information economy without functional search. The web and the internet itself are now so big that without decent search, it's easy to imagine the whole thing would have collapsed under its own weight. But by improving on Overture's pioneering work with paid links, Google was able to achieve something just as amazing. It made the internet profitable at scale for the very first time. Think about it. With the possible exceptions of Amazon and eBay, and remembering all of those hundreds of dot-com companies with their ephemeral billion-dollar valuations, it can really be argued that Google was the first company to make serious money on the internet in a meaningful way. Paid search would prove to be the greatest advertising engine yet devised by man. And automated, targeted, scientific advertising would finally transform advertising itself in the way that the internet had promised to do all along. Furthermore, algorithmically served ads would support nearly every product that Google would release subsequently. Image search, Google News, Gmail, Google Maps, Google Books... Advertising allowed the company to realize its dream of organizing the world's information because the ads would always make it profitable to do so. In a few short years, search ads would surpass traditional banner or display ads, and within a decade, Google would be generating more than $50 billion a year in revenue, having captured nearly 50 cents of every dollar spent advertising online. Today, most advertising is automated in ways similar to what Google pioneered, and even now the largest market for online advertising remains tied to search. It turned out that the gold mine on the internet had been search all along, as Yahoo and others had first intuited, but had subsequently forgotten. By 2003, Google was a company obsessed with one thing, keeping all of this a secret. As David Crane, one of Google's first PR hires, would remember later, quote, we had cracked one of the unsolved puzzles of the internet, making money at scale in a way that users embrace. The longer we could avoid other companies figuring that out, the better, end quote. As ever, Google feared tipping Microsoft off to the value inherent in search. Sure, Microsoft was ailing from the recent antitrust trial fallout and was already entering its lost decade, but the fact remained that the only technology company that had the resources, talent, and size to do to Google what Google had done to Overture was probably the beast from Redmond. Helping to keep Bill Gates and company in the dark was Google's new grown-up CEO, Eric Schmidt. Schmidt had been a longtime Microsoft adversary, going back to the 1980s when he was an early manager at Sun Microsystems, and then briefly in the 1990s as CEO of Novell. Years of experience managing a relationship with Microsoft no doubt played a role in Schmidt's eventual selection as CEO especially when Page and Brin had rejected nearly every other candidate in Silicon Valley. Schmidt was an odd candidate to begin with, given his experience and pre-existing stature in the industry. 
Becoming the new Google CEO would mean having to share the limelight, as well as some degree of the decision-making process with Google's founders. Indeed, the working relationship that Schmidt would go on to form with Page and Brin would become something of a triumvirate where all three had equal say, though if push came to shove, the founders could outvote the CEO. Page and Brin's dream candidate for the job had actually been Steve Jobs, but it's hard to imagine the Apple founder being willing to take a back seat to two 27-year-olds, as Schmidt eventually agreed to do. Page and Brin, on their part, came around on Schmidt because he had a background in computer science, like they did, so he was smart, like they were, but also because Schmidt was the favorite candidate of John Doerr, who was still holding their feet to the fire about bringing in an outside CEO. And for his part, like almost everyone else, Schmidt's first impression of Larry and Sergey was that they were, quote, just really arrogant. But as he monitored the company and continued to meet with the founders, he discovered that he came to respect the verbal jousting and intellectual brinksmanship endemic in Google's culture, especially since it emanated from the very top of the company. Eventually, Schmidt found he couldn't turn down the opportunity to work at the company that was doing the most interesting work in all of technology at the time. The one tech company that was actually in the best position to realize the money geyser that Google had tapped into was, funny enough, Yahoo. It had seen firsthand how paid search in the form of Overture's syndicated links had saved web portals, and thanks to its investment in Google, Yahoo had the best inkling as to what was really going on behind the scenes, especially on Google's bottom line. And so in the summer of 2002, only a few months after the new version of AdWords debuted, Yahoo made a $3 billion bid to buy Google outright. Google turned the offer down, but by that point, no one could argue anymore that the company was being arrogant. Because a little over two short years later, thanks to the AdWords engine, Google would pass Yahoo in total advertising revenue. The student had far surpassed the teacher. Too late, Yahoo realized that search was, in fact, the mother load of business models. So, after having been spurned by Google, it canceled its organic search partnership with Google, purchased what was widely considered to be the company with the second best search technology, Inc. to Me, for $257 million in 2003, and paid $1.4 billion to acquire Overture. The idea, of course, was to combine these two properties under the Yahoo umbrella and replicate Google's algorithms and advertising juggernaut, complete with a quality score and bidding systems that mimicked AdWords in efficiency and effectiveness. Called Project Panama, this next-generation system would not be released widely until February of 2007, by which point Google had run away with not just the search market generally, but virtually the entire search advertising market in total. And by that point, the whole world knew what Yahoo had intuited. Google was, in fact, 
printing money. And so, on April 29, 2004, Google filed for an initial public offering that would be the highest profile technology IPO since the dot-com bubble burst. When Google released a snapshot of its financials so that potential investors could evaluate the company's prospects, both the technology and financial worlds were amazed. Venture capitalist Mitchell Kurtzman told the Wall Street Journal that Google's numbers were, quote, stunning. And Google's PR head, David Crane, remembered that the general response in the tech world was, quote, holy shit. Google had generated more than half a billion dollars in cash flow in 2003, and its operating margins stood at an astounding 60%. Those were Microsoft-level numbers. The online market for search ads had reached $2.5 billion in 2003, which was nearly tripling the size of the market from $927 million spent a year before, and Google had captured approximately $1 billion of that. A lot of this success was thanks to the fact that 35% of all web searches were now being done through Google, which was surpassing Yahoo's 30% market share. Brynn and Page had not actually wanted to go public, having filed to do so only because financial rules would soon compel them to. But if Google was going to go public, just as with everything else, the company would do so on Larry and Sergey's terms. In the letter that the founders wrote to prospective investors, which they called an owner's manual for shareholders, and which the New York Times declared to be, quote, part financial document and part populist manifesto, the Google founders began with a simple statement, quote, Google is not a conventional company, and we do not intend to become one, end quote. Brennan Page went on to state that their intention was to continue to operate Google in the service of their own lofty ideals, to, quote, develop services that improve the lives of as many people as possible, to do things that matter, end quote, rather than bow to the quarterly whims of Wall Street and its expectations. Throughout the coming months, as the ramp-up to the IPO began, the Google guys were accused of thumbing their nose at Wall Street and its various traditions. Larry and Sergey demanded that the underwriters of the IPO only receive a fee of 2.8% for their services, which was about half the rate that bankers usually expect. During the roadshow, when the founders crisscrossed the country ostensibly to sell the company to investors, Larry and Sergey drew fire for flat-out refusing to answer specific questions about Google's operations or future plans. And even the amount of shares Google was offering up to the public was a bit of a prank. Google intended to sell exactly $2,718,281,828 worth of equity. Math geeks, like the Google founders, of course, knew that this number represented the first decimal places in the mathematical number E, which is, of course, an irrational number. On August 19th, 2004, Google went public at $85 a share and rose 18% on its first day of trading to close at $100.34. 
the 38 million shares that Larry and Sergey each held were worth approximately $3.8 billion at the close. As a company, Google was valued at $27 billion, which was behind Yahoo's $38 billion market cap, but that disparity wouldn't last long. By the time Google's first quarterly report as a public company revealed that sales had doubled from the previous year, Google's stock passed $200, and it has never since returned to those levels. It's impossible to overstate how important Google's IPO was to the internet revolution, the Silicon Valley, and the stock market overall. As the New York Times said on the day after the company filed to go public, it was, quote, as if the dot-com glory days never ended, end quote. Google's success was validation that the internet as a social, cultural, and most importantly, a financial phenomenon was not dead. The web revolution had merely been resting during the dot-com nuclear winter, regrouping, gathering steam. But Google was also proof that not only were there some of the original ideas from the dot-com era that were still valid, at the same time, some new ideas might also be out there, now ready to build on the dot-com era's faded promise. Within Google itself, there were whispers of exciting new projects, like, for example, some sort of a Google phone so that searchers could get answers to queries at any moment, no matter where they were. More than anything, Google's success provided the template to make these new ideas profitable. And so, just as with the Netscape IPO nearly a full decade before, with the Google IPO, an entire generation took notice. There was fire in Silicon Valley once again. Now I'm actually going to stop there because I think that's a nice, neat place to stop. And uh, you might be saying, but Brian, you didn't even mention AdSense and all of the other things that Google was doing at the time that were so revolutionary. But as you know, this has been stuff from the book, the forthcoming book. Actually, um, these two episodes are part of two different chapters, one half of chapter 13 and one half of chapter 15. And actually, at this point in the book, I transition into AdSense and explaining how that created a entire economy on the web that hadn't existed before and then that leads into uh, blogger blogging in general the rise of blogs that sort of thing so like i said i think this is a good place to end now and you'll be able to read all the rest of it hopefully within about a year when the book finally comes out as always thanks for listening